Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. Uh, in the second part of a five-part series into the book of James. And my encouragement to you is to open the book up during the week. Have a read of it as we travel through because we're not going to touch on every single verse and there is so much great wisdom that is contained in the book of James. In fact, that's kind of the way it's written. It's written in very, very practical terms with almost proverb-like statements of wisdom that just kind of drop out and pop out at the page. It's sometimes a little difficult to read like a full complete letter of which it is uh, James this this leader of the church of Jerusalem the uh, the stepbrother of Jesus okay so uh, same mom different dad okay uh, and he is the leader of the church of Jerusalem has been for like 20 years knows what it's like to go through trial and tribulation as these people are are kind of persecuted and then scattered and he writes this letter to the scattered church. He writes it to those who are now out and about into the the far-flung places of the Greek Roman world and as they are in those places, he's writing to bring this encouragement to them. He's writing to say, I know it's going to be really, really tough, but I want you to hang in there. Because the big deal about the letter of James in what he writes is this. Are your beliefs and values in Jesus actually transforming and changing the way you live? Do your beliefs and values in Jesus actually make a difference in everyday life? And so what he does is he writes this letter to to talk about some of the really practical things, some of the things that are in the minds and the hearts of those who are concerned, worried, just hanging on to their existence in this world that is so foreign to them as believers, as first century Jewish now Christians, Messianic Jews who are, who are following after Jesus, but in a world that doesn't give a hoot about who he is and trying to encourage them and bring them to life. And we said, well, if we're entering into a new year, a year of 2022, our hopes and our aspirations, the imaginings of what we hope for in the year ahead, have you got any hope left? Have you got a little bit? I hope so, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) If you've got some of that left, they should be guided and directed by being these disciples, these followers of Jesus. And so we need to come back to some real practical ways and the basics of walking out our Christianity, walking out, being these disciples, these followers of Jesus as we do it. And this God-given timeless wisdom of James speaks so much to us today as it did to those people early on when he wrote it in the first century. And last year, we oh, last year, felt like last year, it was close, last week, last week, not last year. But last week, we looked at the, that this year could well be another year of uncertainty in so many ways. But what you can be certain of, okay, is there's going to be trials, tribulations, and difficulties. Oh, thank you, Pastor John. 
Wow, you're really speaking hope to me now. Like, thank you so much. But the reality is that's life, yeah? But James gives us this wonderful encouragement from last week that although that is the case, that there's going to be these difficulties in these trials and all of those things, God promises to supply everything we need in the stress that we go through in all of these things. In fact, he says he gives it generously. He gives it without finding fault. He will give you the wisdom, the way to apply the knowledge of what you know. Again, James talking about these values and beliefs in Jesus and how do you apply them into everyday life. And we looked at that. And this is the constant message of James as we talk about faith in action. How do we walk the walk, not just talk the talk? So you ready? Ready for today? Because he just keeps going on this same thing. Not a new thing, but a new way of looking at it. And I just want to float over the first part of James for us uh, quickly because I actually want to focus on the second part of James. I want to focus from verses 14 onwards. But i just give you a little wrap-up of, of kind of what's happening at this first part of James because he uses these illustrations constantly. He wants to make it really practical for people. I hate discrimination. I don't know about you. I didn't when I wasn't a Christian, but now that being a Christian, there's something that really irks inside of me when I see people discriminated against for one reason or the other. And when I find myself in a position of actually discriminating towards others without even knowing it, and then Holy Spirit might raise something to go, oh, John, you're actually discriminating against that, that person or those people or, or whatever it might be. I kind of go, oh no, like that, I don't want to be like that. I've always had this dream uh, because we discriminate all the time, yeah? I've had this dream of, of being really, really rich. It's a dream, okay, I, you know. <laughs> I've been really, really rich and walking into a, like a, a Porsche dealership in a pair of thongs and shorts and a t-shirt, right? And carrying just a little bag and uh, maybe a backpack or something like that and go, ah, uh, can I test drive that one? And just seeing what they do, you know? No, sorry, sir. You, you can't take that for a test drive because I don't think you can actually afford it. Oh, okay. And then just walking over to another one. Can I, how about this one? Can I jump in and have a look? Please don't touch the car, sir. You know, someone who's got enough money is going to come along and buy this thing. So don't put your dirty paw prints all over it. Yeah? I would just love to then just kind of like zip open the cash bag and just say, well, I'm actually really interested, but I'm going to the dealership down the road. Thank you very much, you know? Because we all discriminate in one way or another. We, we judge a book by its cover far too often. We have internal things in the way which we've grown up, the way we've learned, the way we are, the environments we've grown up in, the values and beliefs of our culture and the things around us. They have come deep into the way in which we see the world and we have these prejudices, we have these partialities towards various different people and things. And James starts the chapter by saying, there should be no discrimination in the church. 
There's no place for that in the community of God's people. And he uses an illustration between the rich and the poor. And James is declaring a message that unity and inclusiveness are essential to living out our faith in Jesus. Inclusivity, it's essential. Now you have to remember that this is a time in the first century of the Roman world where there's a large amount of discrimination that is held as that's just the way life is, thank you very much. And it's between whether you're Roman or not. You could be some sort of barbarian or even a Jew in in this sort of instance they're talking about. It might be that you're free or or that you're a slave. It might be that you're rich or that you are poor. It, It might be that you're a man or that you're a woman. And the unity and the openness of the early church and this idea to be inclusive and do not discriminate on any of these boundaries is just like totally shocking. This is such a counter-cultural message to the society, to the culture in which James is writing to. And the unity and the openness that he's asking for is that James really wants us to be very clear that we should always show mercy to others refraining from partiality. He says, mercy always triumphs over judgment. And you know, one of the things about James is when he's writing, he's constantly kind of referring back to the lessons that Jesus teaches about in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's there in Matthew chapter seven where we read that, uh, that Jesus says, for in some way you judge others, you will be judged and the measure you used, it will be measured to you. In other words, don't be hard on people. Be merciful. I'm a merciful God who loves you, who cares for you. I'm quick to forgive. How about you? I'll treat you a little bit like you treat other people. And the mercy we show will be extended to us again on the day of judgment. And we're told mercy triumphs over judgment, so be merciful. Don't show partiality. Come together in this whole sense of inclusiveness. And that's the way he starts it. And often James is referring to these little snippets, these these things before he gets into the real deal he wants to talk about, but he uses it like an illustration. He can say, I see these things are going on in the church. Don't let it be like this. And this is the reason it shouldn't be like this. And this is where he gets into the meaty part of chapter two. So let's dive into today's passage which is probably one of the most provocative parts of the whole letter. This is where James just lays it right out there. He puts it out for everyone to see. And and the question that he is raising is, are you who you say you are? Are you really who you say you are? Tell me, what do you think one of the, the greatest things that the world says about Christians, that they're loving? I hope so. That they're kind and gracious? I hope so. Unfortunately, far too often, the community at large says, you guys are hypocrites. You say you believe in this, but you act like that. Where's the alignment? And this is the whole thing James is getting on about the whole way through his letter. Do your values and beliefs actually line up and do they 
influence the way in which you live, the actions, the everyday stuff. He says, are you Christian by name or are you Christian by nature? Let's have a look. James chapter 2, we're going to start by reading verses 14 through to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing to put their physical needs, help about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Before... I came to a place in my life of asking Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Before I came to the realization that I was trying to fix the brokenness I found in myself and the world around me by my own means, doing the sorts of things I wanted to do to try to numb the pain, make adventure, the fullness of life, all of those sorts of things. Before all of that, I, I knew the stories. I, I knew the stories about God as I was growing up. I, I knew about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I knew what it said in the Bible. I went to Sunday school, yeah? I, I grew up in a Christian family. I could tell you all the jargons. I could sing with all the songs. I knew what it was all about, but I wasn't a Christian. I could call myself a Christian because I grew up in a Christian family, but I actually wasn't a Christian. If you were to look at my lifestyle, my language, my choices, the decisions in which I made, my attitudes, none of these were actually reflecting a life of Jesus, a disciple, a follower of him. But when I was truly convicted, when I was truly brought to a place of going, Hang on a minute, all the things I've been doing to fix the brokenness I felt inside actually brought me to a point of calling out to God for his help to save me from those things, what the Bible calls sin. When I got to the point of asking him for his help to forgive me and to take over and be in charge of my life, now there was a transformation that took place. My values changed. My thoughts started to change. My foul potty mouth started to change. The way in which I saw things and the values I held all started to change because they were starting to reflect the life of Jesus. The values and the behaviors started to come together. I was transformed to the point where my friends that I'd had up until that point were, were just kind of a little shell-shocked at how different I'd become. James may have well have been writing this to me in my pre-surrendered Jesus years. He's dealing with people who say they are Christians, but their hearts are unchanged. They haven't been converted. People who say the Christian words, might sing the Christian songs, might know about God, but things have never really transformed them. 
And his strong message is that faith in Jesus brings eternal life, and eternal life brings life to the full, which is a life that's now of transformation. And that transformation can be seen. If you're a real Christian, it can be seen. It produces a deep change. James says, if you don't have the works and you don't have the deeds and you don't have the glory living, godly living, then your faith is false. Your faith is dead. James isn't talking to outsiders. He's not talking to the world at large that's trying to run their own life by their own set of values, by their own sets of ideas and not bow their knee. He's talking to people who have claimed to have done that. He's talking to insiders, not outsiders. Making sense? But unfortunately, many people today claim to be Christians and believers. They simply are not. Some simply believe in God, which is not sufficient. Others have asked Jesus to forgive them their sins so they can go to heaven, but there's no true repentance. There's no actual change in their life, their lifestyle, their their values, their beliefs, their attitudes. Others have the appearance of being believers, but with all the wrong motives. They look like it on the outside, but scratch underneath, and it's not the same. Jesus spoke about people called them false prophets who would come in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they're like ravenous wolves who are trying to attack the pack, you know? And he raises the question of how, or the answer to the question of how, how, how would you know someone like that? And again, from Matthew chapter seven, he says you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. See, a true believer will have correct beliefs, but not even that is enough. The fruit of their lives needs to be this this good fruit that honors God. It's a fruit that is evidenced of the true believer. Their actions and their attitudes, they come together by the instruction of God's word. There's a fruitfulness that comes out of an intimacy. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, you will have abundance of fruit, a fruit that will last but it only comes from being connected to the vine. It only comes to being grafted in. It only comes when you're one with me, when you allow what is the truth of what I am saying and who I am to be evidenced in the way you think and you believe and you act and the choices you make and all of those things that everyone else can see. The fruit of a person's life are the result of what's in a person's heart. Is Holy Spirit having his way or not? Jesus puts it this way. He says, those who love me, who are true believers and have relationship with me, they will obey me, he says in John 14. The obedience to Jesus is the good fruit of a person who believes and loves Jesus. The faith in and the love for Jesus demonstrates itself through outward actions. You can see it. Now, I I really need you to understand that faith and deeds are connected together. 
It's really important to understand James is not saying this. He is not saying faith plus works equals salvation. He's not saying that, okay? He's saying faith either does not have or it does have works and therefore is either dead, no works, or alive, works. If your faith is alive, works naturally flow out of your life. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's not that. It's this faith, this loving, this obedience towards Jesus that transforms us from the inside and the deeds flow out. It's not a rule book. If your faith is alive, these things will naturally flow out of the intimacy that you have in relationship with Jesus because he's transforming the very way you think, the way you make decisions, the priorities that you have. James says, I know some of you are going to argue about this. And he says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Let's leave it at that. You have faith, I have deeds. And then he says, well, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It appears that James and Paul might have not got on so well, you know? Because Paul is the by faith alone guy, right? Romans chapter three, verse 28, we says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Actually, they're actually complementing one another. They're coming to the same point. They're not contradicting each other. They're just from different perspectives. Paul is explaining salvation to the outsider and James is explaining transformation to the insider. When Paul spoke of works, he's talking about works that refer, refer to the obedience of the law, you know, like obeying the Sabbath and all the various other things, the required sacrifices and all of those. And he's saying it's not by doing those things that you're saved, it's by your faith in Jesus. James, when he speaks about works, he's referring to the fruit of our faith, the stuff that bubbles up out of this intimacy of relationship, the obedience out of love. Paul is saying you can't be saved by keeping the law instead of trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Paul is saying, don't tell me how great you are by keeping all of these different laws that you have. But James, on the other hand, he's concerned with people who, are, who have confused a more intellectual ascent with true saving faith, which ultimately produces fruit. James is saying, don't tell me what you know. I want to see what difference it's making in your life. In verse 19, he says, then you believe that there is one God. Good. Good for you. Good for you. you. You believe there is one God. Well done. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
James is saying, you believe in God, well, good on you, that's great. But don't forget, even the devil believes in God. And that belief he has in God makes him shudder. That's how real it is. <laughs> do you, do you, where's your shuddering? <laughs> He's saying. Where's your life different because you know this? The devil believes and the belief, the word that's used here, isn't the saving belief. This is just a knowledge of. You have knowledge of God. You have knowledge of his ways. You have knowledge of these things. But where is it making a difference? That's what I want to see, James says. The devil could pull up our river life statements of belief and quite happily read them out with you, sitting there. You can read them together if you like. James says, what do we make of the person who says all the right things, but they don't even shut up? Something's, Something's wrong. True belief. True belief is always connected to an outworking of belief into actions. And then he just wants to make it again really practical. And I love how James does this. He takes two people from the history of the Jews, of which every Jewish person knows about, and he uses them as an example, and he takes them from two extremes of people that we find in the narrative and the story of God's love for his people and how he then brings a Messiah in Jesus. One is Abraham and the other is Rahab. Abraham, the great father of the faith. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham and the covenant found between him and God that he would make this people a great nation, a multitude, too many to count. And Rahab, the prostitute. Abraham, the male. Rahab, the female, remember Don't discriminate. James is now using an illustration to say, okay, let me show you from Scripture. Don't get on your high horse about who's better here or not. Abraham, of course, course. hands down, Abraham is going to be the best, right? He's male, father of the faith. He says, well, what about Rahab? And she's a prostitute. Abraham's a Jew. Rahab's a Gentile. So you can see how he weaves this in. And he's really saying, you know what? It does not matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you put, you know, whether you're male, female, Jew or Gentile, whether you've done great things or whether, you know, somewhat in your life you've made some bad choices. If you've put your faith in God, it's going to show up in what you do. Abraham and Rahab were both immediately forgiven when they put their faith in God but they were ultimately proven to have faith by what they did. It was credited to them as righteousness. Again, James is not saying that it's their works that saves them, makes them whole, makes them complete, justified, just as if they hadn't done these things or anything else like that. He's not saying that it's their works, it's their deeds that actually save them. What he's saying is it's a reflection of the faith that they had And it was then evidenced in what they did. 
He says in verse 24, a person is shown to be a believer, justified, vindicated, acquitted in the ultimate sense that when he or she shows there is a new life at work. And he says, therefore, faith and deeds are connected, just as life in a body is connected. It's all interrelated. It's all interconnected. Don't separate these two things out and make one a bigger deal than the other. I love how O.S. Hawkins puts it. He said, it's not a faith with works. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that works. You can see it. And last week when we touched on this whole idea that James is saying there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be struggles, and when we rely on God for asking for his wisdom, we come to this maturity by persevering through because of the joy, the way in which we see beyond the pain right now to what the outcome is going to be. It gives us the joy to persevere through the struggle, asking God for his help on the way through, the wisdom that he'll give, aligning our attitudes and our values and our beliefs to the stuff that really matters right now and how that works out in each one of our lives. James is not saying, this is not just a mental ascent. This is not just coming in and knowing about God, knowing the stories, knowing the songs, knowing the culture, knowing the religious laws. That's not what it's about. It's about faith in action. Faith was acting according to our belief. It has a difference that can be seen in the real world. That's what an alive faith looks like, not a dead one. That's an alive one. So what do we do? What do you do with all of this? We call on God. We ask for Holy Spirit's presence to be so real in us that we can act out of the overflow of a life of intimacy with Jesus. People talk to me and, and, and still struggle to get their minds around why in our vision statement it's so important that we start with the words of family embracing the Father's presence. It's really so important because if you don't start there, you're starting to demonstrate stuff off the wrong foot. It could be through religious law and activity, thinking that that's just what you need to do. Or you might just give mental assent to the fact I'm in relationship with Jesus, I, I, he, he saved me, that's it, I'll live how I ever want or whatever. And James is saying, no, no. And we're saying it's so important to connect into the embrace of the Father's presence, to actually push yourself, motivate yourself, embrace the Father's presence. This intimacy with Him is where everything flows and starts from and ends in the fruitfulness that can be seen in all of our lives. What does the fruit look like? It looks like declaring and demonstrating the kingdom of God to everyone around us. That's the fruit. It's evident in the lives of those who are intimate with Jesus. Rejoice in what he's done. Be thankful for the cross every day of your life. 
keep short accounts with others and keep short accounts with God. Praise him and thank him for rising you from dead into life. Spend time with Jesus in the word and in prayer and in worship, hearing from God, allowing him to bring that sweet and gentle conviction and then the joy and the peace of our salvation. Kill off the things in our life that fight against your faith. Kill them off. Don't allow them. And when you recognize them creeping in and maybe they've start to get a stronghold, go and get some help to break those things away so you'll be free to live in this embrace and this intimacy of presence with the Father and preserve and make every effort to grow in your faith and faithfulness. One of the passages I just love so much comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's been a bit of a life verse for me, where it says in verses five to eight, make every effort, I like how he starts, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and with knowledge, self-control and with self-control with patient endurance. Remember last week? And patient endurance with godliness and with godliness, brotherly affection and with brotherly affection with love for everyone. And the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's echoing the words of James. You see, that's when we're productive. It's when our faith and our values and our beliefs in Jesus actually displayed in each of our lives. That's what he keeps talking about. He's not asking us to just try a little harder. He's not asking you to do it in your own strength. He's not asking you to follow a new set of laws and rules. James is not saying just work harder at being good. Put in more effort. No. He's imploring us to align what we believe with what we do. Let it come out of the transformation of our lives. Little story in my testimony that I told earlier. I made a decision to follow Jesus one Sunday when I was about 19, 20 years old. Next Saturday, I was at a party living like I was previously. Stayed there all night. Woke up with people I barely knew in the morning. All the rest of it, you know. And my friends said to me that week, Oh, Robbo, you are just like you always have been. This stuff about being Christian. Oh, and I felt the deepest conviction I'd ever felt. And Jesus said, you're either going to be real with me or not. I'm either going to have everything or nothing. What's it going to be? And I chose to give him my everything. And that's when my life started to change. And that's when my friends started to see the difference. A bit rough when you're convicted by your non-Christian friends. All these deeds are in the context, of course, of the need. And I don't know about you, 
The more I look at my social media feed, the more I spend time with people in our community, the more I hear of what's happening in the news, I can be overwhelmed by the enormity of the need. With the limited resources, with the limited knowledge, it can be hard to know where to start. Maybe, maybe we all just need to start with what's before us. The practical things we can do. Is there a neighbour who needs help mowing the lawn? <laughs> Is there someone's kids you can look after because she's a single mother who works late and needs to be helped? Is there someone who needs food at the moment? Is there someone who's just got a test and they're locked away for seven days and they didn't do their shopping and they need some help? Drop it at their door, I don't know. We have ministries at the church that help go out with street teams into our neighbourhood. Buckets of Hope, which is continually in relationship with our chaplains where we're giving things and helping families in need. We're going to Youth Detention Centre weekly at the moment and just spending time with kids who need to know about a, a different kind of hope than the one they've ever seen before. Maybe you do things like you sponsor things like International Justice Mission or you sponsor kids around the world that, that we don't have the, the knowledge or the experience to go and do those things, but we can jump on board, we can be a part of things. And I think rather than just being paralyzed by the need that is around us because it can be so overwhelming, let's ask God for the eyes to see the specific needs that he's placed just before us. The willingness to stop and join with him for the one that's in front of you right now. Who is that? What's your faith gonna look like to the world around us? Let it come out of the intimacy. Let it come out of that place where we're, we're right with God. And you might think, oh, I'm too old. I don't have the resource. You're not. God has all of that. He'll show you something you can do. He'll show you who you can be when you're intimate with Him. Let's pray. Father, just want to thank you so much. We start by being thankful. We're thankful for you, Jesus. We're thankful that you brought us salvation. We're thankful that you give us eternal life. We're thankful, Lord God, for that you are ready to be merciful. You're slow to judge. You're bound in love. Your mercy is new to us each day. Your forgiveness is always on offer. And we thank you that you bring transformation into our lives. That there might be from the intimacy, there might be a fruitfulness that we have with you in our faith that brings forth deeds and works that would bring you glory, God. Even the things of your Holy Spirit, the fruitfulness of love and joy and peace, and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and the way that's expressed to everyone around us. And the power and the gift of your Holy Spirit working supernaturally and miraculously through us through signs and wonders that aren't even in our control.
God, let us be a people whose deeds, whose works, whose actions in our lives because of the transformation that's happened within would bring you glory. Lord, help us to grow in this godliness in the works of the fruit of our faith in you. Forgive us. Forgive us if we've asked for salvation and then gone on living our life our own way. We come to the point of saying it's all or nothing. And we want to give you our all. Forgive us, God, if we've lulled ourselves into this false sense of security that we know a lot. But in knowing a lot, we've kept ourselves at arm's distance from allowing you to know us a lot. God, let the gospel have its full outworking in and through us. We pray that you would give us a joy in the good news of the transformation we've experienced out of the intimacy of the life that we have with you and that you would display, God, your good works in and through us, designed especially for each one of us to do. And we ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. I pray and I hope that as you enter this week, we're again just challenged to be real practical with our faith, to allow the love of Jesus to bring transformation and change to all of us. And that this week in your sphere of influence, your front line, people would see something different in you as they see Jesus living out through you. Bless you. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.